first time ever. Hear you loud and clearly. Um, and it was going place. That stuff's great. But the game is not a roguelike. Boomer shooter. <laughs> Bang. Hello, this is John St. John, and you're listening to KWEP In The Keep, bringing you all the hits from the finest in the world of gaming and entertainment. Now sit back and relax as the drowned god Cathala lulls your mind with the tastiest talk in town. Welcome to another chapter of In The Keep podcast. I'm your very own prophet of the drowned god, the Motherlode. The Keep is a collective of gaming enthusiasts compelled by the drowned god Cathala to frag and jib one another into oblivion for all eternity. Hi, my name is Carlos. Uh, some of you might know me as Rebel. I'm a Los Angeles-based music producer, creative director, project lead, and as of late, a video game developer which has been an interesting turn in my life um i've i'm i'm pretty new to the the game dev side of things but i've been doing music for how old am i now (laughs) (laughs) i want to say like 13 years at this point 13 14 years um in a professional capacity maybe like seven or eight so like what are tacos like in la because i hear they're like better oh my god I know, I, I, I know you're joking, but you do not want to start the taco conversation with me <laughs> because I, so I, I was, um, I was born in San Diego, but I spent a big portion of my life in Tijuana, Mexico. Um, my whole family's Mexican and I think Los Angeles, Mexican food, and I'm, I'm probably going to get so much hate mail for this is, is, is baloney. <laughs> it is not good. I live like, in the Sonoran desert, man. I know what tacos are supposed to taste like. Yeah. Yeah, um, like th- there's two places out here that I that I think are all right, um, but they're all right because the people that came over um, to make these places are originally from Mexico. They're from Tijuana or from somewhere else in the Republic, and they were chefs out there or they made tacos out there. Whereas a lot of the time, the people that come out here and have taco places weren't, you know, they just kind of decided to do that because it's like fuck, well, I, I got to make some money somehow, right? And no, no hate to the hustle either. I just, you know, I'm, 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 I'm a snob with tacos. That's about it. That's, <laughs> that's where my snobbery ends. It's with tacos. Um, I know you're a culinary expert and all, but like, you know, <laughs> I, I think you, you should understand this then that tacos or, or just any food really, it's just better when somebody's abuela or my mama makes it for me oh instead God. of, you know, going and buying it at a store. Yeah. And yeah at least here like the mom and pop places are where you go to buy mexican food you don't like go to fucking guadalajara five-star mexican bistro or whatever (laughs) you go to like the the fucking taco stand that's open on the side of the street in the in in the middle of the night (laughs) yeah yeah no 100 man like that's it's like mexican culinary culture there's a lot of um incredible dining experiences um out in mexico that you can have that are like will rival anything from a Michelin star restaurant when it comes to fine dining. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it comes down to like street food or like homemade meals and stuff like that, I mean, everything about Mexican cu- uh, cuisine is very centered around 
like fresh ingredients and like uh, old recipes that are passed down and very simple foods that are heavy and and heavily rooted in, in the culture of the native peoples of South America. And so it does make a massive difference to have someone make it for you fresh on the spot. Like my litmus test for whether or not a Mexican place is going to be all right is if I walk in there and I don't see someone that looks like my grandma on the back, like, like pressing down some tortillas like this. No, no way. I'm, I'm out. Like, <laughs> like if, if, if those things are made fresh, it's like, it's such a important aspect of, of that food, you know? And th- I can get into a myriad of reasons why one of them being that like a tortilla that's made out of corn is not gonna last very long. You know, it has a very short uh, shelf life. And so what people do to make sure that you can um, distribute it to stores and stuff like that is they add a bunch of crap into it that just ruins the flavor and the texture of something that could be really sweet and, and, and just very light and fluffy. And in turn, it turns into this weird floppy breaky mess that tastes like lime too much. And you're kind of like, what the, what the, this is, this is not a tortilla, man. Um, which is actually the history as to why, um, you, you know, hard shell tacos are a thing. It's because I would assume because they can be distributed. Like, yeah, exactly. We, we had it. They had a deep fry them. That was the only way that the American palate could kind of like become receptive to that and not become a logistical issue to have to like make those fresh at every one of your locations. So I grew up in like South Alabama and for the vast majority of my life only ever had South Alabama Mexican food, which was, you know, you wouldn't be like, what? <laughs> if you saw something it. like California pizza, I can imagine like barbecue fries and like, what the fuck? <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is all very delicious. Don't get me wrong. It is, it is good food. It is just like this extremely different thing from, you know, what it's being marketed as. Oh yeah. Fuck yeah, man. Like, like that, that's another thing too. It's like, yeah. I have had Tex-Mex or like, you know, like Americanized Mexican food. And like, even though I don't consider it authentic, it's fucking delicious. Yeah, it's yeah. good. I, it, it's great. It's just not, um, you know, it's just not Mexican food. Like, you know, like I'll, I'll have some shit from a can and be, it'll be pretty all right. Right. Or I'll go to a, like a Tex-Mex place somewhere in Texas or something. And like, despite the fact that it has nothing to do with anything I've ever had in Mexico, it's awesome. It's delicious. It's a fusion of flavors and things that are unique and you can't really find anywhere else. And I consider it its own thing. Um, and I'm not going to be a purist about that, but it, the, the problem is when you go somewhere out here, that's like, Oh yeah, best tacos in LA, super authentic. You show up and they're like serving you mission tortillas from the store and like ground beef. And you're like, what? Here's, here's no. a pound of fucking sour cream, baby. Knock it's like, no, get, get, get that shit off my taco. <laughs> 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 Unless it's a Tex-Mex place. And please all the crema, everything. Yeah, all of give it me everything. Um, <laughs> I know that was like one of the things when I first moved out to Arizona because I had, I went from Alabama to like California and I'd had stuff there and then I ended up here and the first time somebody showed me like a Sonoran dog I was like whoa oh, <laughs> this is a whole different thing <laughs> like they yeah, got, yeah, yeah. they've got everything man but I think that a, a lot of uh, you know your typical middle America person thinks of Mexico as like just this one big homogenous thing. And, you know, the, the food in, in, in Baja is different than the food in like Chihuahua or whatever. Like it's just a, 100%. It's just yeah, it's like America. just as diverse. <laughs> it's like how you have food in, in the north of the U.S., right? And from the cities. And then you have southern barbecue. It's the exact same thing in Mexico because 
Mexico is not just comprised of like Spanish immigrants and um, native peoples that kind of like, you know, like, oh, that, that's a Mexican. No, it's it's years and years and years of like, like a cultural melting pot that happened in America also happened in Mexico. You know, when the Second World War happened and before that with all the wars in Europe, because, you know, for a long time, that's the history of Europe. It's like every couple of years, it's like, all right, you want to start shooting each other? Yeah, that sounds about great. And so people would flee. And we get the story that they all went to the United States, but that's not at all the case. A lot of them went into Mexico. We have in Mexico a giant, diverse range of cultures whose culinary um, sort of roots became part of ours, right? Like there's something known as the Alpa store taco, right? You've ever had that? Oh, the one yeah. on the spits? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, that that is because of Lebanese immigrants to Mexico. They came from the sense. Middle East, and then if you go to the south of Mexico, where they typically landed, you don't ask for al pastor tacos. You ask for tacos al Arabe, which means tacos from the Arab. Arabic tacos, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and you know, that, that, that spits, that's the same thing you go uh, get at a kebab place, is just yeah, Mexican ice turn into a taco, right? It's actually and, interesting, just in general, how much how Arab Spanish really is like Spanish culture in general really is because I don't think, I don't think people realize like quite how similar the two languages are. And I've studied both pretty extensively and it's weird. And it's all, I believe the, was it the Ottomans that kind of took over Spain at one point? Yeah. I mean, it it was, it was um, caliphs from the North of Africa like that for, I think 300 years. And like, I'm I'm a big history buff too. So Mm. I, I just, am awful with numbers and dates and shit like that in general. I, I can give you rough estimates of, as to when stuff happened and how it happened, but I can't tell you like when, um, but for a decent amount of time, we, uh, the, the Spanish peninsula that almost extended all the way up to the North, but mostly the South, like places like Madrid and Barcelona, um, were part of a Moorish caliphate. And so the language of Spanish became intertwined with a lot of the, linguistic characteristics of of their language like you know there's so many loan words that we have in spanish like anything that's al al yep that's arabic almohada azúcar that's that's the arabic word for sugar and you know uh algodon which is cotton and there's so many more that i could probably sit here for an hour and list them but like at the same time it infiltrated spanish culture and so when you listen to like traditional Spanish music, right? Those sort of like melodic takes, those rhythms, everything about like flamenco, for example, sounds super Arabic. The way that that the Spanish sing, right? It's got those same kind of notations that are like definitely culturally inherited from their time as part of a, you know, the greater Moorish empire at the time. Um, but that in turn also then got shipped over when, you know, after the reclamation of Spain and whatever. And then, you know, you had uh, the conquistadors and, and the Americas, like a lot of that culture seeped over here. And then you had an entire second wave of immigrants from the Middle East that came into some like, you know, places like Mexico or um, places like uh, Chile or Argentina. And there it was like a whole different wave of that same culture, like re reestablishing itself. Um, down to the fact that like a lot of my friends down in San Diego, when I was growing up were, were Arabs, 
right? They were from the Middle East, and and we had we realized how much we had in common really early on, down to even like physical appearances, right? It, it, it's crazy. It's it, it's really crazy how much the Middle East influenced like uh, sort of Hispanic Latin culture, um, and for the better too. We we our 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 spices, our palates, they're so similar. They're so similar, um, and even down to our family, like, you know, a lot of the, the things that we enjoy are, are very Mediterranean in nature, right. From the music to the, to the food, to that kind of experience, like some of our favorite places to go are from the middle East. Right. Or, um, you know, the, are some of our favorite mu- music to listen to is, is middle Eastern in origin, at least, uh, somewhat. And it just goes to show how much overlap happened and how much it still influences like Latin culture to this day. I mean, even, even the way that Spain or, or like proper Spanish, I should say, and that, that goes all the way around to every Spanish speaking country at this point, mm-hmm. but you can tell the, the differentiation between how they, uh, they take pronouns in Latin and, or, you know, what was kind of influenced by Latin in general, but it is, is very distinctly in the Arabic style. It's very different yeah. than you know, French or even Portuguese to a certain extent. And, one of my one of my favorite teachers, his name was Ibrahim, right? This is when I lived in uh, Monterey. And he he was a Kurdish guy. So like, you know, north east or yeah, northeastern Iraq. And he, you know, was living in California and he spoke perfect Spanish. So like he had a whole bunch of people thinking he was Mexican. Like yeah. for real. And they just believe they're like, oh fuck, yeah, there's this Ibrahim. Yeah, I don't know why his name's called that, but he sure as shit is Mexican. We all know that. And he would laugh his ass off as like people just thought this. And he was like kind of kind of a shorter, rounder guy for an Arab too. I, mean, I don't know like enough about the difference between Kurds and because you know, I think they kind of consider themselves eth- ethnically distinct to a certain yeah. extent. But yeah, he just like you totally would have believed him. You'd never known the difference if I didn't just know where he was from because he was my teacher. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. Even here in LA, when I remember when I first moved up here, like a lot of my friends down um, in San Diego, we uh, we always considered ourselves to be very you know very Mexican, but by nature, you know, we're first uh, first generation immigrants for the most part, or um, you know, sons of first generation immigrants, and and as a as a result, like you know, like we interacted with each other, and we're like, okay, yeah, like this is this is who we are culturally. And then I came to live in, in LA. And the first thing that happens when I try to go get tacos on, on like the corner somewhere in Koreatown, because that's where I was living when I first came up here is I get two dudes in front of me, start talking shit about me because at the time I was, I, I had a buzz cut and I'm, I'm, I'm pretty fair skinned and I'm like six, six, four. Um, and I, 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 I don't look the part too often. Right. And they were they were talking shit about me. And it's like, oh, that's, that's the way. Like, which is like, you know, they they said all kinds of shit that I'm not going to get into. And I was perplexed for a second. I'm like, are th- these guys are really talking about me, right? And one of the things they mentioned is like, oh, he looks like he's from the Middle East. Basically, they they said I looked like I was an Armenian. And I can see that if you told I, me then, you were Armenian, I'm gonna be like, hey, okay, he's Armenian. <laughs> yeah, and, and 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 so then I replied to them in like perfect Spanish, and they're like, oh, what the fuck? And I'm like, yeah, dude, I'm I'm I was actually, you know, I'm from Mexico proper, you know, like I my whole family is Mexican, and it, it, it took them as a shock, and it took me as a shock, and then I started to realize, like, as it happened more and more often, where people are like, oh, are you Middle Eastern, you know, or someone would come up to me when I'm, I'm I'm at a shawarma place or whatever. And they start talking to me in Arabic and I'm like, wait, wait, hold up. Hold up. No, I'm, that's, you know, 
I'm, I'm not from the Middle East, but you know, (laughs) there's that, that kind of overlap, you know, it just goes to show that even what you're saying affects a lot of us that we don't even realize it until we're exposed to that culture in a more broader sense. Right. It's it's kind of like a nasty thing. It can, it can be, but it could also be like just really funny and like innocent, you know? Yeah, exactly. I remember when I was a little kid uh, and I went to that same, you know, Mexican place in town that served barbecue fries and, there was this guy there who always played the guitar. Like he was just always out there and he would sing like country tunes and, and whatever. And I remember walking up to him. I was like, so, uh, you know, like I was genuinely a curious little boy. Like I was not a piece of shit. I was just like, you know, what part of Mexico are you from? And he's just like the Philippines. And I was like, Oh, oh yeah. and then I realized everybody in that restaurant that everybody in my town thought were the Mexican family who owned the Mexican joint were all Filipino. Like, yeah. and that was just, kind of how they were getting by it's like shit yeah i learned something that day yeah that they they were also conquered by by the spanish and and they have some of the same cultural overlap and a lot of people it's the same thing it's happened to me where like uh like i i go somewhere and i meet someone and i start talking to them in spanish and they're like wait no 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 i'm filipino i'm like (laughs) oh wait okay that makes perfect sense you know my favorite one was uh, my friend yes way we went to a, a sushi restaurant and sat down and, and she just started speaking to the waitress in Japanese because she is Japanese. And, yeah. and the waitress is like, Oh, I'm Korean. And I was like, <laughs> oh, I guess you, <laughs> I guess you just fucked yourself there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it just goes to show how sharp cultural barriers can be in between peoples who look very similar and may act very similar. Right. And how diverse we can be yet. So similar. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, it's happened to me so many times out here as I've moved to a, a far more diverse city um, in Los Angeles that it, it, it's, I mean, it's great. Like it's such a sharp difference from like growing up in, in Chula Vista down in San Diego and like pretty much you went to high school and it's like everyone there was like a Mexican immigrant. Right. It was just an extension of that. Um, and all my buds were, were from Mexico and we all hang out with each other. And then you come up here and it's suddenly like, oh, there's there's a lot of that still, but there's so much more. And, you know, like some of my best friends now are kind of like they come from all walks of life. And it, it's been an absolute like joy to experience that side of things by moving to the city. Um, and that's one of the few positive things <laughs> that have happened because of moving to L.A. Uh, God, you know, so- like. Other than the shitty tacos, what made you settle down in L.A.? Well, I mean, I, it, it had gotten to the point for – so like I said, I, I'm a musician. I'm a music producer. And for a long time, I had been fighting the idea of having to live up here. But then a lot of the work that I was starting to do was more and more increasingly becoming in-person or you know, relationship-based. And I was having to drive up here like – once a week, once every two weeks. And that drive, if you have to, like, unless you're leaving in the middle of the night, it is a brutal, brutal, slow traffic and just jag offs cutting you off. And it's just, oh my God, I couldn't stand it anymore. It's almost like, I, as bad as Atlanta. Almost. Yeah. It, oh my God. <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't know enough about the traffic in Atlanta to really make the comparison. But all I know is that th- that is by far my least favorite part about this damn city. And, I was like, how about I just move up here and like cut out the middleman and I just like 
if most of my work is happening in LA and a lot of the things that I want to do are centered in LA between shows, promoters, uh, uh, you know, record labels, executives, parties, stuff like that. Like I don't want to make that track anymore. I feel like it's going to be more important for me to live up here if I want to keep doing things in that Avenue. So I made the decision in like 2017, I think. And I, I just packed my shit. I drove up here and the rest was history. Um, but like I said, it, it, it's like, it's a great experience. It's a, it's a fast moving city. But as the years went by, I found myself moving more north and north and north to get away from the shit. You know, like it was one thing to move up here. And in my head, I was like, yeah, I'll just move into the damn center of the city and live there and, you know, be, be a part of the fast moving culture and everything. I'll just and be was- poor for the rest of my life. Yeah. And <laughs> then I was like, okay, maybe that's not the, the most ideal situation. Right. Um, and then as time went on, I kept moving like a little bit more up north or a little bit further up and up and up. And now at this point, I pretty much live like three streets down from like the most northern part of L.A., <laughs> like, <laughs> like 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 up a mountain in, in, in this place called La Cunata. And it's just like if I have to go to downtown L.A., then I will drive there. It'll take me 20 minutes, but I am not going to suffer that shit anymore. It was not great. <laughs> and to anyone who's thinking of moving to L.A., do not make my mistake. You can live anywhere in the city. Just don't live in downtown. It's not worth it. It's really not worth it. Especially now, man. It's a fucking just it's dead. It's oh. everything's just been shut down. Like the last time I was in Los Angeles was probably like 2017, somewhere along those lines. And yeah. and I wanted to get, you know, like I've got a night to stay here. I'm going to get the full experience. So like I rented a like a hotel on Hollywood Boulevard, which is a huge mistake. And then I end up walking through tie town all the way to like the comedy store. And, (laughs) and there was like a fucking Disney was like debuting some new movie with the rock in the middle of the street. And I'm like, fuck this. I I would never live here. Not like I felt the same. I just don't like cities. That's what it really comes down to. I appreciate like the intermingling of culture and commerce and everything, but I was born in the country and that is where I will retire. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 it's more out of convenience that I live up here and I totally understand yeah. what you're saying. Like I, I live out here because I have to like, you know, but like I said, I've, I've, I've I now live in a place that's so not Los Angeles. It's basically, yeah. excuse me. It's basically like 10 or 15 minutes from JPL and the community was founded by JPL scientists and their wives. And you know, they all became retirees and, these houses were built in like the fifties and before that even. And it's a community that's just full of very old people and it's very calm and it's really <laughs> peaceful. And it's just like, it's almost like a suburb, but it's not. And it's still, if I want to get that experience, I can drive through it, but I'm not like, I'm not in the shits anymore, which has been so good for my mental health. Right? Like I can go outside in the middle of the night and just look up at the stars and actually be able to see them. And it's peaceful and it's quiet. And I don't hear a car or gunshots or some <laughs> shit, or fucking police cars or anything. It's just so, it's so nice. And it's more akin to what I'm used to, you know, like San Diego is also a big city, but where I grew up was very, very down South, like 10 minutes from the border. We would just drive there, cross, go eat and come back. Like it, it, it was, it was a much more quiet, settled down place versus when I first moved up here and I'm like, yeah, let's, let's go straight to downtown and let's live there. (laughs) 
you know, it, it was, it was, it was jarring. And like, and like exactly like you said, like I appreciate it, but I have come to find that it is, it is overwhelming and not for me. Um, and in many respects, um, the, the pandemic as terrible as it's been, has been, uh, pretty, like pretty easily navig navigable from, mm -hmm. from my side of things, just because I'm, I'm like what I like to call an introverted extrovert. I can pretend like I'm very sociable and everything's okay, but I want to, I, I just want to sit on a computer for 12 hours and like work and do things in there and exist in, in that. Right. Um, but a lot of my work by nature requires like what, what's considered to be like a type A personality. So it's like, you have, you have to kind of like get good at doing that kind of shit. Um, and I like to pretend as if though I've, <laughs> I've gotten half decent at it. Right. But, um, in, in that respect, the, the, the pandemic allowed me to pretty much like hedge my chips and be like, Hey, we need you to do like some album work for this person. And then and it's like, Oh, we're going to rent the studio at this time. I was like, <laughs> listen, I'm not comfortable, you know, being around people. How about I do that work from home and you guys don't have to rent the studio and you can pay me my same fee. You'll save money. Oh, that sounds good. Okay. Yeah, that's reasonable. That's, thank you, Carlos. And I'm like, yep, that's, that's why I'm doing that. No other reason, <laughs> you know, that's, I'm being considerate. Mm. <laughs> I, I can't even, I, I'm trying to find a way to put this into words that doesn't make me sound crazy, but you know what? Fuck it. I'll just sound crazy. I think that creativity is sort of like an energy, like a, like a radio wave that, you know, people have different ways of tuning into it. Like you have a, right. like a, a radio, you know, interceptor in your head, a receptor. And for me, mine works best, you know, when I'm alone, when there's not a bunch of other waves coming through, like other people talking or like whatever. And I'm good at conversations and in situations where it's like, you know, one, maybe two or three other people, like small groups. But when there's a lot, like I couldn't be less happy in like a dance club or something like that. If I can't hear the other person speaking to me or, right. or feel like I'm being heard. And so, yeah, like creative energy really flows for me when I'm alone. Yeah. And, and I think for it, yeah. And for you, it's probably very, I think that's why I resonate with game devs so much is because you're kind of always having to put yourself in that situation. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, I mean, I, I started doing game stuff before I even started getting into music. M music just resonated that same chord. It's, it's all creative um, expression, all of it. Everything that I really am passionate about in my life is some form of creative expression. Um, I love to cook and I found a lot of the similarities from cooking are from music. You know, it's, it's, it's the same core principles that apply to, that form of expression also apply here. And in, in game dev stuff, the reason I started making music is because years ago when I was, when I was a little kid, uh, like I was making mods for Halo C. You ever hear of Halo C? Halo Custom Edition? Fuck, man. That's, this is the first time I've ever heard of that. Ooh, all right. Well, get ready. Pack in. How much time you got? <laughs> it's only, we're only 26 minutes in. So all right. I got you. We got I plenty. Got you then. Like I was saying, um, Halo C is, is, is Halo Combat Evolved, but there was also a lesser known package that came out for the PC with the PC port that Gearbox Software made in like 2001 or 2002, 2003, 2004, somewhere in that general range, I just don't remember anymore, called Halo Custom Edition. 
And Halo Custom Edition basically allowed you, as they packaged it, to just use the exact same tool set that Bungie used to make Halo. Um, just they had gutted a lot of the functionality to only allow you to make maps, right? Um, and, and, and Halo Custom Edition was a very interesting, um, to say the least, way of packaging a mod support environment it, it like the way you made content for that game was not like anything else that i've ever seen and i could be completely wrong maybe it's due to inexperience but like for the most part i've come to learn as years have gone by that you know if if, if you're making a mod for something it's usually some sort of quake based engine at some in some extent right it's all it comes packaged with the level editor or the level editors are brush based and they're like their own little suite. Uh, Unreal Engine games, it's a similar process. For this game, you had to basically use 3DS Max or like the free version of 3DS Max that existed way back then called GMAX. That was kind of like a Quake 3 thing or some shit like that. I can't even remember. Um, and you had to pretend like you were making maps for Halo as a BSP, you know, and, and BSPs are are very finicky about what they allow. And so essentially you were being forced to make a very limited level that conformed to very strict rules in a very freeform environment and in a way that wasn't typical of anything else out there at the time, as far as I know. And that is honestly something that I look at now and I'm like, thank God that I got into this thing because it taught me how to use some of the most um, abrasive and like industry leading software like, you know, Photoshop and uh, 3ds Max and Maya, you know, things that are typically you're going to have to go to school to understand. Right. But this community was using these tools to make maps for this game. And you ended up learning software that became invaluable for whatever career you were doing, if you were doing something creative. Um, and as time went on, sort of like these, this community figured out how to unlock all like the tools and stuff like that. So um, you ended up being able to make like custom vehicles or custom weapons or custom like player models or custom HUDs, stuff like that. Like basically anything that wasn't the engine was exposed to you after they figured that shit out. And you end up learning a lot of different skill sets doing that. Like for me, like I was, I was a little kid, dude, I was like 11, 12, something like that. And I had figured out how to animate in 3ds max. Right. And how to, you know, paint textures with Photoshop and how to eventually, you know, realizing that if you make a reload animation, the sound isn't going to be in sync, um, modify audio. And then that opened a whole different door to like, kind of like realizing like, oh, that if I take this piece of audio and I loop it a couple times, it, you know, it, it may be like a kachink from like a, a fucking gun reloading, but it, it has a rhythm. It's like, and then that, that kind of awoke something in me. I'm like, okay. And then I just started taking like different gun sounds and like making beats with them. And then I, dra- I, 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 I like, I grabbed a Daft Punk song. I'll never forget this. And I threw it in there and it was um, face to face by Daft Punk. And that song I think just starts with a kick. Yep. And then I realized like that looks like something that shape 
it looks like a like a little like a candy corn uh and it's just on its side is that what a kick sound is and i grabbed that and i just looped it and i realized that the closer that i looped it to each other like the faster the tempo was in that uh, it, it was over at that point like i i stopped giving a shit about modding games after that and i kind of discovered music but the thing that got me there was video games and then eventually it all kind of came full circle in a different way when i was touring a different project and um when it came down to like okay you have to do live visuals right we can hire this guy to do them for you. And, and then I'm like, okay, what are they going to do? And I saw a lot of their work and it was just 3d crap. And I'm like, wait, I, 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 wait, hold up. I know how to do this. And then it started with me making my own visuals. And then eventually it got to a point that I was touring with the computer, a laptop that was running a, a build of, of half-life two that I had modded that essentially was just a freeform camera. And I had built this environment like, like out of like brush shapes and stuff like that. And like, that was my visuals, right? I was up there DJing and stuff. And then I had like an Xbox controller next to me and I was just kind of like flying around and panning the camera. And I knew if I flew into this room, like, like, you know, an explosion would happen and I could time that with the drop of a song. And it was, it was like this whole like VJ DJ setup that I had going on that, you know, eventually reawoke my passion when it came to that kind of like graphic and 3d design sort of things. And few years removed from that, like I was doing a lot of projects for artists that were very involved in just that side instead of like making music for them. And then eventually it all truly came full circle with sprawl, you know, like that, like I realized when the pandemic hit, I was like, I have two options, sit here and pretend like everything's okay or do something and do something that's going to be a form of creative expression just to kind of circle back on what we were talking about earlier, because I really feel like creatives are um, just in the same way, like (laughs) just in the same way that like an average person needs to take a shit. We need to create or else we get backed (laughs) up, you know, I do both, you know, at the same time a lot (laughs) at the same time. Oh shit. You're multitasking at that point. But yeah, like, I mean, what, what I'm trying to say is that like, you know, we, we get pent up, we have to be making something. And then when, when coronavirus hit, it's like, I had just played three great sold out shows here in LA. Like there was tours in the works, all kinds of crap. That was awesome. And we were looking so forward to doing that. And then, you know, it kind of all just stopped and I was still getting work, just doing production work for other people, but that's, you're working for someone else. It's not your vision. Um, and even when it is, you're kind of restricted to playing ball with someone else. Whereas this, I, I wanted to do something that was truly, just me and was about merging these two worlds, right? The music and, and, you know, an interactive experience. And that's kind of like the foundation of what, where, where Sprawl came from, at least from my side of things. And then Hannah has heard her story as well. And to those of you who don't know, Hannah is my co-developer, um, incredible programmer, brilliant mind. Um, and she independently of me had started doing her own project and we kind of just found each other and, you know, ended up where we're at now. Uh, from the way you put it, it's like Hannah, you know, does all the work and then you just take shits and yeah, 100%. Yeah. <laughs> I take creative shits. That's what I do. That's exactly how in the keep works. It's like, I have Gilmos on just doing all the real stuff and then I just take credit for it. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, to, to, to say the least, it's like we complement each other very, very well. Like a lot of the things that I'm not good at, 
she's incredible at a lot of the things that she's not good at. I can do, um, in sprawl, I'm doing, you know, all the level design, all the art, all the character design, all, you know, the texturing, the modeling, the animating, um, the weapons, all the sound design, all the music. Um, I have complete creative control over that. And then she handles all the, the nitty gritty of like, let's, let's make this a real thing. Like, you know, like we come up with ideas for how the game works, the functionality, the, you know, the game loop in, in and of itself. And then she basically brings it to life. Right. Um, and in, in a sense, like, I mean, before I even knew her, like I, I tried to work on this game, like as a dark places mod, kind of like wrath. Right. Yep. Um, do you ever see that by any chance? Do you ever know about that? It's like the lore at the bottom of the iceberg for Sprawl, the Dark Places version. I mean, I've had the benefit of hearing you being interviewed before, so I got the gist of the story. Ah, right. But on. I never saw that version of Sprawl. I think I'm going to do what like Dust did and like kind of package it like hidden somewhere in a subfolder and not tell anyone. <laughs> you know, like those first three levels and all that. It, 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 it's a cool experience, but it's just so much. It's far removed from what it is now, to say the least. I mean, there's so many examples of that where you, you know, you see something start off in a certain way and then you see it again. It's like when you go back in, uh, have you ever seen the documentary that was like, it was, I think it was packaged with the, the original trilogy, maybe like 20 years ago or so. I still have it somewhere, but they made star Wars and then they're like, this sucks. And then they just didn't ship that and made star Wars again. Yeah. They, and, they saved that in the edit. It was George Lucas's wife. Right. And, I mean, they literally filmed the whole movie and then went back and filmed the whole movie again. You know oh, what I mean? Yeah. yeah. It's it's wild. And then, you know, you have to save it with the edit too because uh, that, that was like the perfect storm for George Lucas because he's, uh, you know, he's one of these people that just has like creative diarrhea and he can't stop. And it just, yeah. like just the limitations of the budget and the time and the, you know, the, the medium for him in the 70s was perfect to get him to just quit when he had to and make the best thing he could. And then that ended up being, you know, one of the greatest uh, media franchises of all time. Right. Um, where was I going with that? No, the, the, seeing the, you know, the way that things start to where they finish, I think can be hugely, hugely informative about, you know, when someone's looking at what you do and they're like, well, I could never do that. But then you show them like, well, this is where I started. Like, yeah. Oh, Oh, well, I can make that garbage. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 100%. Yeah. I yeah. mean, like that's that's something that I that I preach to everyone. Like you you if you're a creative person and you can you want to create something, you will find a way to do it. I I had a history from a modding community from when I was a kid, but I had never worked in games before. I've never done anything like this before, but I'm damn stubborn. And you can ask anyone around me. And they'll tell you I'm fucking stubborn. Like I will, I will pile our power, you know, like I will sit down and I, I'm going to power through something until I figure it out. And that's in essence what Sprawl was, right? Like, I mean, started on dark places, then I met Hannah and then, you know, she convinced me to switch over to Unreal Engine, just to paraphrase a very long process. And then I'm sitting in there staring at Unreal Engine and I'm like, I don't know how the fuck to use this thing. Like this is completely foreign to me. And then I sat down and I figured it out. Like, you know, so I'm convinced that there's so many people out there that could make incredible experiences that just don't realize that if they just put in the time to do so, they, they totally fucking can. 
like it, it, it's like I'm super like I said and and even in the past podcast with um with dump truck it was like I I can't wait to see more musicians explore this side of things as well because their creativity is going to lend itself to create incredible new innovative experiences that I cannot you know I, I think is much needed in a space that feels like it's starting to stagnate a little. Um, fresh blood is always great. Um, and one example I brought up was like someone like Marky music, right. Who I listen to his tunes and I'm like, this is great fucking shit. And it's so diverse. Like, I wonder what his game would look like. Right. And I've, and I, I've played his levels in quake and they're, they're great. He understands level design. And it's like, you're, you're like one step removed from doing that kind of shit. Um, and I'm sure at some point he he probably will, and it's going to be awesome, but you know, and then I see that and I'm, and I become curious about other people, right? Like people in my circle that are producers or graphic designers or whatever. It's like what, you know, creative directors, et cetera. Like what, what, what would your game look like? Right. Um, and what's, maybe it's necessarily not something that you want to do, but if it is something that you want to do, what's stopping you? Michael Markey is one of those rare individuals who, some people are like, you know, born with some talent, you know, like an affinity towards something. And he, he's like brute force, just creative. And I feel like well, that's me. anything, yeah, <laughs> yeah, anything that he, I mean, we could say he, but like we're probably, we're both trying to talk about ourselves. Um, but anything that he wants to do, anything that he decides he's going to put his time into, he will be equally as successful at it. Like that, that's just yeah. kind of who he is. It's not, um, if he didn't become a musician, he was going to become something else. Totally. And, totally. you know, and he probably, he's already working in the industry as a mapper now, like not just as a musician. Yeah. Which yeah. makes him so unbelievably hireable. Like, Oh dude. I yeah. mean that, that, that's sort of what I'm bagging on too. I mean, like I, Jack of all trades, that's decent at all of them, which is probably very appealing. Um, and it's also the fact that like you can kind of get that impression just by like looking at the guy or talking to him or, or one or two times like I have. Like I have no relationship with him besides having a conversation at one point. And I'm like, I get I get the gist that you, you've got some similarities to me that, you know, I maybe haven't really I don't have any reason to believe besides the fact that it's just a gut feeling. Right. Um, and you saying that out loud is kind of like, yeah, I knew it. I knew that. <laughs> I knew that shit, but you say, you also mentioned that you share that similarity, right? That, that desire to want to do shit and like brute force and just kind of like, I'm, I'm going to fucking figure this out. I don't care how I do it. Um, that was like one of the things that my mom, you know, would always tell me is like, there, nobody could ever tell you no. Like if you made up your mind, you were going to do something, you were going to do it. And that is pretty much how I operate. And I, I'm not saying that like, it's not even necessarily always a good trait <laughs> to have. It can take <laughs> me know. down some really, really dark paths. I got and, you. you know, put you in therapy for a while, but I, I'm just that way. And I think you're, you're absolutely correct. Like you're very, very similar, at least from what I can tell so far, like yeah. you're, you made up your mind, you were going to make this game and God damn it. You're going to do it no matter what it takes. Yeah. And, and it pisses me off. Like, I, I mean, I have no interest in being a level designer, right? Like that's just like, that's uh, not what something I want to do. And uh, and I'll say that like, Oh, I, I can't do that. And people will always respond like, well, you could, if you wanted to, I'm like, yeah, but I don't want to. 
Right. But if right. I did want to, I'm 100% confident I would do it and like it wouldn't be a problem. Um, but I could say the same thing about like podcasting or I never thought for one moment that I would be, you know, doing this. This is not a career path that I ever envisioned for myself until <laughs> I was, you know, probably in my early 20s. I did a, a small podcast that no one will ever hear that was mostly about like pro wrestling and <laughs> and but like I couldn't get that out of my like I even though I didn't do that, like I had to go do other shit with my life for a while. I knew I was going to come back to podcasting at some point. And when I found it and in, like I felt like, oh, this is my motivation to do that. I made up my mind and now I'm just going to do it. And you're not going to tell me otherwise. And that could be anything, man, like for you. Yeah. yeah. If somebody, if somebody had told you when you were like nine years old, like you're never going to be a musician, you still would have done it. <laughs> 100%. It's also sometimes like, that's the best motivation. Yeah, of course. It's, it, 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 it's it's hilarious if someone tells you you can't do something it's like fuck you now i i really want to do it right like now I'm, now I'm really i'm gonna do it harder yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the amount of you know and, and it was funny because what i was getting what got me into you know music and stuff like that was the fact that um i, I was making dance music at a time where dance music wasn't yet popular in america it was this weird fucking niche thing and obviously that has completely changed as of late Right. Or even back then. But like, like I, I got my start doing that kind of crap, like in a time where it wasn't popular and where the people around me saw me like really enjoying that kind of style of stuff. And like, you know, starting to experiment with it. And they're like, that's that's crap. You know, that's that's bullshit. You're not that that's nothing. And I'm like, all right, bet. Four years later, I'm on a tour bus and I'm everywhere across America. And like I'm playing shows with some of the greatest people just fucking my, my one of my greatest accomplishments with that thing was uh we we did a sold out show in in san diego in my hometown at at the at, at one of the biggest stadiums there and like that was an incredible thing to be a part of to really see all the same people in the crowd that were telling me you were you're never going to be able to do it like cheering my name like i was like yeah yeah that's right fuck you <laughs> and that that is such an incredible motivating factor right and even even with sprawl it's like it's one of those things where I've learned to weaponize that in such a way to motivate me that it, it, it feels like it makes you unstoppable. Um, and I'm sure there's been plenty of people in your life that have told you you can't do something and then you desire it even more than ever. I mean, if and, you just draw a line in the sand and say you will not cross that line, I that's I, I can't help it. That like you've it's basically like you forced me to. okay that's good to keep in mind next time i'm in arizona and invite you out to drink as soon as my mom was like you know like you can't say this word it's a bad word i'm like oh no i'm definitely gonna say it like it's my fucking favorite word my entire personality (laughs) is now based around that word yes exactly (laughs) that's Um, funny enough because i feel like your mom and my mom would probably sit down and talk and be like did we raise the same kid probably man my kid just said the word shit over and over again for like three years (laughs) I'm like, ah, okay, that's similar. <laughs> well, it's like a breaking point because when I was really, really young, I, I was a very much like a rule, like a timid kind of like afraid to break the rules kind of person. Mm-hmm. And once that barrier got broken for the first time, I was like, oh, there's no consequences. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> oh like, fuck! What are yeah. you gonna do? <laughs> like, yeah, I, dude, I fucking got you, man. Like literally, word for word, that's that's that, that's a similar upbringing. That's something I could fucking relate to. It, it, same thing. I was I was a shy little kid, and then 
you fuck one thing up and you realize like I, I didn't die they told me i couldn't do this and i'm doing it now so. <laughs> why doesn't this just apply to everything and then you just immediately stick a fork into the wall socket and you're like okay <laughs> maybe maybe there's some shit i shouldn't be doing <laughs> yeah. it only takes one time to get ran over by a golf cart on a skateboard to uh learn not to do that again it's the school of hard knocks you know yeah. I, it's also not entirely true. Like a lot of the things I've, I've been very fortunate to be blessed with, like a, a, like a desire to, to read and ingest other people's experiences and um, an ability to learn from them without me necessarily having to go through it. Right. Um, whereas I feel like a lot of people in my life that I've known or I've grown up with, it's like, dude, like you, you just, you need to just go through the school of hard knocks. You, you're just not going to listen to what anyone tells you, right? Like there's, it's one thing to someone try to stifle your creativity or like try to prevent you from doing something that you really want to do passionately. It's something else from someone telling you like, don't jump off that cliff, dude, you're going to break your back and being like, fuck you. And then they're in a wheelchair. But like you know, the, the, for those people, you know, for every hundred of those people, like one of them ends up being one of those wingsuit guys. And you're like, well, you know, fuck. <laughs> yeah 100 percent. um how many but, people told the right brothers like that's never gonna work you, you know yeah 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 but I, but i consider that in a completely different realm from like someone who is actively doing things that are damaging to the people around them right or damaging yeah. to their well-being in a way that isn't like you know like the right the right brothers and the right sister who's you know the primary reason why they even stayed in that shit the rights it's, yeah you, you you have you ever seen that story like, no I'm interested now I, I, I highly recommend it I, I feel like you're into like like history just as much as I am and like it is a weird fucking story like they had this pact where they couldn't even like you know like they couldn't get married and like they. they like you know what it's all it's us together until the day we die and just weird shit the sister was like abused and she was a big part of the reason they were even able to get off the air and like no one even knows who she is it's it's like it's a bizarre story you know and now that i think of it i have quite an affinity to bizarre historical occurrences you know um i was just what the fuck is this this guy's name you ever hear about that that rich dude in the colonial America. I think his name was something Dexter. Ah, fuck. I'm literally going to look it up like that. (laughs) Oh my God. Have you ever heard of Timothy Dexter? No, tell me the story. Let's go. All right. Timothy Dexter was, was this motherfucker who it's like he is, he was, Dumb as a sack of fucking potatoes, dude. <laughs> and he just bullshit his way completely into becoming one of the richest men in America at the time. Like, com- like complete bullshit. Like, like you know, like like people would fuck with them and be like, "What?" One of one of the stories I remember that it's like, you know, he he had already gotten rich and he was this uneducated dumbass, and like, uh, you know, the rest of the aristocrats really hated him, so they were like uh, giving him business ideas that were bad. One of them that they gave him was like, "Hey, how about you send?" Uh, coal to what was it Lancaster some somewhere in the UK that was very famous at the time for manufacturing coal and with the obvious you know connotation like you know that's not a good idea you're gonna send coal to the place that manufactures coal to try to sell it 
Fucker buys a ship, loads it up with coal, sends it out there. And by the time it gets there, the workers that got on strike and they were running out of coal sells it for a massive profit. <laughs> Should have gone fucking under. And, and and like, it's like, there's another one where like there was these bed pans you would put under your beds. Like if you lived in the UK or like, you know, in, in cold climates and you would put coal in them and it would keep you warm. And they told this guy, how about you send it over to the, to the Indies, to the, to the Bahamas, to the Caribbean, a very warm temperate climate. And his stupid ass did the same thing. He sent it out there and they use these pans to mix molasses instead of for their intended purposes. He sold all of them, got even richer. He just like all these weird fucked up stories. And then there's one where he wrote a book, dude. He wrote a fucking book. And I, please just, I need you to look at that book. It's called a pickle for the knowing ones. (laughs) And it is all in broken English. Like, the the spelling is completely fucked and then there's no punctuation anywhere anywhere in the book not a comma not a period not anything and people were complaining about that fact right after it sold you know was a fucking bestseller for the time this fuck <laughs> this absolute shit show of a book was a bestseller for obvious reasons uh, i love the the cover art is just like this <laughs> university latin <laughs> no no, it, it, oh it is defi- it is it is definitely not. Are, are you looking at it? Because then he reissues the book after people complain about the fact that there's no punctuation whatsoever, and he adds eleven pages at the end of just commas, question marks, exclamation marks, periods, with a note that says, "If you want quote to, if you want uh, punctuation marks, add them yourself." Here <laughs> they are. I've provided them for you. Okay, so I, I'm now seeing the actual book like the first thing i saw was the preface this is the book itself to mankind at large the time is calm at last to grat day of rejoicing (laughs) what is that i will tell you thou three kings is raised raised you mean should know raised on the first royal arch (laughs) in the world almost not quite but very hue up upon so they what the fuck dude i wasn't fucking kidding this is one of like my favorite stories ever like it is so bizarre and so stupid it's like this guy this guy got shined upon by god there is no explanation why (laughs) anything about this man's life should have come out the way that it did he should he should have tripped he should have he should have woke up one morning and forgot how to breathe like that's how bad it was and i feel like you're gonna get a lot of joy out of out of exploring this weirdo thing i'm sure there's a million youtube videos and fucking books and shit written about this dude because it's just it's one of those guys that i wish i could (laughs) from history and put him in front of a computer and it's like you have a twitter now please (laughs) please please just entertain us and he he, the greatest shit poster of all time it would be hilarious my favorite was always like how newton was just mixing chemicals together in his mom's basement or whatever and, and going through the Bible and inventing complex mathematics so that he could take the the numbers in the Bible that are like the number yeah. verses and try to like calculate them together in some way that would tell him when Jesus was going to come home. Yep. And Edmund Halley like hears about this guy and he's like, Hey, wh- what about this comet though? And, and that's how 
calculus ends up being invented. And without that one friendship, or if you want to call it a friendship, I don't really know how chummy they were. <laughs> then, you know, modern, most modern technology would not have evolved in the same way. Like we would not have the same understanding of the universe. Yeah. It, it, the, the forces of, of, of nature are far more chaotic than we like to think. And we have convinced ourselves that these people were absolute flawless geniuses. When in reality, like a lot of their motivations were very, very fucked up. Um, and were, was pure fucking luck and coincidence that things turned out the, the way they did. <laughs> right. Um, and funnily enough, I'm, I'm trying to remember the date that he predicted for the end of the world was like 2056 or something like that. And, I saw an article like four or five years ago about the prediction of when fish are going to run out in the oceans. And it's like somewhere around 2050. And I'm like, Oh, spooky. (laughs) (laughs) It's obviously going to be, I don't know who who fucking knows what's going to happen. I don't think that, you know, I'm not a very superstitious man at all, but like, it's one of those things that it's just like, that'd be a good story on like, I don't even know, like some, like the X files or some shit. It's just like, I don't know. We we look at things like you even use the word superstitious. And I'm like, I'm always in this mindset of just because I don't understand it, you know, doesn't mean there's not something, you know, some other evidence that has just not been revealed yet. Exactly. Uh, you know, just because uh, to use Newton again, like all he knew was that shit fell, you know, it's very easily observable, you know, like Apple falls to the ground okay why and then it just takes a lot of extra thought to get there and and if he could make that prediction if he can make the prediction of like you know a comet going around a solar system that he could not see i mean why couldn't he figure out when the end of the world was going to be i don't know i mean i hope not (laughs) yeah no definitely not uh but at the same time when, when i say that i say that with the caveat of like i'm about as logical and reasonable as a human being can be, which is not very logical or reasonable at all, right? <laughs> Some um, infinitesimally law, like small, tiny, tiny fraction. Yeah, exactly. Like I, 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 I pretend like I am, but in reality, I'm not. Like I acknowledge that there are things out there that we cannot, we don't understand yet. Um, I think faith is an important aspect of human society as a whole and how we function. Um. My my distinction lies at to, at the point of like people's faith should not supersede or impose restrictions on people's freedoms. That's about it. Um, we we obviously as humans have gotten to this point because we have found a balance between our rational our ability to rationalize and our emotional component as well. You know, which is responsible for things like empathy. Um, and the people that I often see that are like, oh, if we were all logical, reasonable beings and everything would be fine. It's like, no, you'd be a bunch of fucking sociopaths. And we would have, you know, probably killed ourselves much earlier than we were probably going to kill ourselves now. Um, I think the source of a lot of people's anxiety is, you know, they think of life like this this vehicle they're in, like it's a car. And they are trying to stay in control of it. You know, they, they want to understand every little thing and they, you know, they have to find and grasp onto something that answers all of their questions. And it's kind of like what we were getting into earlier, but I'm like, you know, if you just take your hands off the wheel, the car keeps going. It really does. And it, 
<laughs> yeah. That's that's just how life works. And I think we're all just in this big, messy, random pile of craziness going on all the time that we don't understand. And people who claim to understand are usually charlatans. Yeah. And and they're gonna, you know, I'm not trying to stop them. You know, go be a fucking maniac, be a tyrant. And I don't want you to be a tyrant over me, but like it's gonna happen whether I do anything about it or not. And then uh, you know, eventually someone's going to come along. It's all just this kind of big moving acid trip of a fucking pattern that's happening all the time. It has happened all the way through human history. So just like, you know, when people get real uptight about, well, you know, this is what I think and my take and my belief and all this kind of shit. And I'm like, man, you just need to like, let go, relax, yeah. have a beer, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I dude. I mean, it, it's like, it's that, and it's also the extension of like when, when, when should you step in? Like, what, what? There, there are obviously things that we, we as people can be doing better, but like, your buddy Timothy Dexter is living proof. Like, he didn't need to step in; it just happened. Dude, what? I need. I oh my god! Thank you for just, circling back on this. I want to keep talking about Timothy Dexter, this motherfucker, dude. It's just like, like if there was a lottery back then, he would have won seven times in a row. Like it is. <laughs> Fuck, dude it is so fucked like and those are the only the stories i can remember but his entire i just remembered another one he faked his own death to see how many people showed up and then when his wife wasn't crying came out with the stick and started beating her in front of everyone this is a <laughs> fact three thousand people or some shit like that showed up to this man's funeral and they were all standing there in a wake he was getting buried and his wife wasn't crying and so he came out and scolded her for not um you know sh- grieving enough his oh my god his relationship with his wife dude like i'm just starting to remember this shit it's coming back like as as a flash this guy he, <laughs> his, he would have people over at his pad and you know he would tell them that he was single and they would be like well i saw it i saw a woman coming up and down the stairs and coming, no 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 that's just the ghost he would tell people his wife was dead and that was the ghost of her like it is a bizarre like it's one of those shits that you just can't make up and i and i'm I'm honestly i feel like whoever's in control of the simulation if it is a simulation is fucking with me at that point there's no way in fucking possible that insane right mark twain had to have heard of this guy oh oh my god that's got to be the inspiration for like the the scene in tom sawyer and huckleberry finn where they you know go to their own funeral yeah Dude, I, I'm, I'm sure he did. I, I feel like he, he, he's an American legend that is, um, that I stumbled upon because I was reading some book like a few years ago and they were talking about it. And I'm like, I've never fucking heard of this guy. And then I look him up and I'm like, I just went through his entire Wikipedia page and I'm like, where I, I need more. There's no way. There's, there's no fucking way. Like, can I check the sources? Someone, someone's making this shit up. And then I just, I, I found an, a book that's about him and I'm going to try to find it and I'll send it to you. Um, and it's literally just like someone who did an analysis on his life and like retold these stories and just put them in a way that just kind of like um, he presented them as they were recorded and then made calculations as to how logical or how probable any of those things happening could have been and came to the conclusion that he was probably the luckiest man to have ever lived. Like it, it, it's bizarre. It's fucking bizarre. And I hope that, you know, at some point after humanity has fallen and, and 
everything about our society is crumbled, that we have created a new pantheon of pagan gods and that he exists as one of them as almost like this like Loki type figure where you pray to him when everything in your life is fucked and you just need something to go right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. um, So I was going to use that as a a transition (laughs) to say that kind of what we're talking about this, this sort of, being a part of something that's big and expansive and that you can't quite understand. Like you're just small, a small part of a largely unrevealed world is kind of a theme of sprawl. And the way that you, at least if I understand your plan, right. in having played what I have of it, you know, you start out with a lot of unanswered questions, a very vague thing. And it seems that you, you know, just the name itself implies that you're going to slowly, you know, kind of learn more and more about this world, which is pretty, that's almost like I'm just describing any game, but right. In particular, it seems to be an overarching theme. And I was wondering if you could kind of like lead me through your thought process on that. Um, so I fundamentally believe that some, of the best stories, some of the best games that I've ever played have been the ones that don't hold your hand, whether it's narratively or gameplay or anything else. It just kind of, it thrusts you in a world and it expects you to figure it out. Um, People much smarter than me nowadays have kind of come to the same conclusion when it comes to gameplay that, that, that is the case, you know, like engaging experiences are not abrasive, but they do force you to play their game. Right. Um, the power fantasy is fun for all of 10 minutes and you can ask Hugo Martin about the differences between doom 2016 and doom eternal and the sales differences between the two and the complaints levied against the two and realize that they probably went in the right direction. But when it comes down to story, I feel like that, that principle still applies too. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of lore. I like, I just went on a fucking, I don't even know how long 20 minute rant about this random dude that I learned about in history. And, and, at the same time, that sort of same obsession has carried over into various aspects of the things that I enjoy in my life. You know, some of the things that I have found that I enjoy the most is like mythology or even fictional mythology. I love Lord of the Rings. Oh my it God. Is, I, I was like, literally about to say like I, my next point about the game was going to be to bring up Lord of the Rings. Oh, man, oh, dude, are you ready? Is, is your, is your ready? mom's name Tracy? No. Damn it. Uh, <laughs> is it Teresa? Yes. Mar- Marcia Teresa. Your mom's name is actually Teresa. Her second name. My mom's first name is Teresa, and she goes by Tracy. I swear to God. My mom's second name is is Teresa, which is a Spanish version of that, and first name is Marcia. That oh that God. is fucking crazy, dude. That oh that you're you're I'm about to lose my shit. That is nuts. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. Well, What's your dad's name? <laughs> Carlos. Okay. Well, mine's Mark. So. <laughs> okay. Well, if your name was also, then maybe we'd have a, <sighs> a similar vein right there. But uh, anyway, to get back into it just a little bit, Lord of the Rings. I love Lord of the Rings because it's just annals and annals and annals of endless lore and history that you can he, – he mapped out so much about that universe in a way that – you know, if someone told me that like, this was lost volumes of history and actually happened fucking 30,000 years ago before the end of the world, the breaking of the world of Numenor and shit like that, like, I'd fucking believe it, dude. Languages, genealogies, it, it is so expansive. And it was something that after running out of actual history to read, like realizing that that was also there and I could just dive into it as much as like I, I learned to love 
lore. And at the same time, looking into all that kind of stuff, I, I, I try to figure out like, what kind of person was this man that was able to write this stuff? Right. And find out that he was such a pious man and was channeling um, his love of, of, of Christian romanticism into, into like this, this beautiful volumes of books and in, in, European mythology and all things of that nature. And that inspired me to go into mythology, into linguistics, into languages and, 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 and understand and, and appreciate that. And I ended up filling my brain with enough of that crap that I, I, I realized that just to circle back on the whole talking point of this, and we, we, we're definitely going to go back to Lord of the Rings at some point, but sprawl in, in a sense, um, and you know, I want to give credit to Hannah too. Like, like a lot of her influences with when it comes down to the story have made it in. But the story of Sprawl is in essence something that I've been chipping away at since I was like sixteen. Not because I knew it was going to be a video game, but it was just something that I would do on my free time. I would like come up with these stories and like these people that lived in this world and kind of like, you know, it didn't have a name back then, but it was this vaguely cyberpunk kind of kind of universe and how it got to that point and you know it was influenced by a myriad of different things and the way that i want to present the lore of sprawl as is as being something that we're not telling you anything you have to look for it there's going to be you know have you ever played marathon i have seen full playthroughs of marathon but i've never decided that it was worth playing it's not a great game, but you would love the way that they presented a story because it's like they, there's a Wikipedia about just the terminals and, you know, there were little pop-up terminals and you can find extra ones. And they, they, they wrote so much lore and so much fucking story for this game that it just blows my mind. And that's in a way how I want to present a lot of the things about Sprawl. It's like as the game progresses, like things are going to unfold and things that you thought were a certain way are going to end up a completely different way. It's going to break a lot of the tropes that you expect out of cyberpunk. Right. And it's about presenting the thing early on as being a very superficial, like, Oh, look, it's just a bad, it's an AI and it's, he's, you know, you're, you're going here and you're going to topple the government. And then you slowly start to realize that that's not what's actually happening. And I can't get much more into that, but I can guarantee you that, a lot of that early impression is going to like start to flip as, as the game starts to progress and you start finding these logs if you decide to look for them. Right. Um, and it's going to be one of those things where it's like, it's lore, but it's optional. It's lore that you, if you want to find, if you want to explore and if you want to understand this world, you'll find things and it'll be like, you know, IP addresses that you can type in and it'll send you an FTP page and you can download something and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's weird, like almost ARG expansive area of lore. It's a lot of stuff that I want to do like that. A lot of crossovers with the real world. And at the same time, just like how I hope that I can present the gameplay of the game. It's like, you can walk around and just shoot shit and completely ignore the game loop. If you want, you're not going to have a great time and you're going to die a lot. And you can totally play the game without giving a shit about the story or anything. Like there's, there's going to be areas where, where, father the, the the main sort of rogue mysterious voice in your head is talking to you and like he's locked you in a place to kind of like you know do a, a little exposition jump and you can just jump over the fucking fence and he shuts up and he's like okay i guess you want to keep going right and having that autonomy that level of of control given to the player i think is very important in making an engaging experience because 
what makes a game great, in my opinion, is your ability to influence the game world. Whether it's through a gun or through the story or your actions in any way, shape, or form, your ability to, you know, enact parts of your personality into into the game is what makes a game for me very, very great, very, very fun. It, it, you know, the more that you encourage um, emergent gameplay, I think the more fun the game becomes. And I think the games that have stood the test of time are often the ones that have either tons of emergent gameplay or tons of emergent storytelling or tons of, you know, things that were designed to be able to happen, but not encouraged specifically. You know what I'm saying? I feel like that was a lot to unpack. <laughs> so have you ever have you ever played the game uh, Fez? I haven't. I've heard of it, and I've looked at it. It looks interesting. The only reason I haven't is just because my time is so damn limited that, like, my backlog is huge. I have a ton of games on Steam that I, I bought and haven't even downloaded. Um, Fez is one of them. I, I'm right there with you, man. Like, I... I can only make time for, you know, what's really important to me. And just, I just happened to play Fez at some point, like a friend recommended it to me and, and I played it and it is one of the most beautifully written games without like telling you anything. It's all environmental storytelling. Yeah. And essentially like, if you know the gist for people who don't, it's, you're this little 2d guy, his name's Fez because he wears a Fez and he lives in a 2D world and everything's cool, but then some shit starts happening. And then, you know, when he gets the Fez, suddenly he's opened up to the third dimension. Mm-hmm. And so in a, at its base, this is like a 2D platformer, but because you have the Fez, you can shift your perspective and see in different dimensions. And that's how they set up most of the puzzles of the game. Right. And this is all analogous to like, at least the, what I took away from it was humankind kind of only, you know, existing within our three dimensions. And then the fourth being time that we don't really, we're aware of it, but we're not really fully able to measure it and like see it for what it is. And, and that game goes hard. Like it's real deep into like, there's like these ancient alien civilizations and just like through suggestion and environmental storytelling, they tell this really prolific, mythological story and because we were kind of going on the tangent of myth i mean we, we brought up tolkien and he was very very into you know the the beowulfs and the the, mm-hmm. the poetic eddas and, and all this stuff he, was, he yep. was also a linguist and he really understood and he had a very famous argument with c.s lewis who yeah i guess they were buddies and all this about you know c.s lewis is you know why are you trying to like tell myths you know like myths are just lies and tolkien was like even though you're not literally telling people what happened the the beauty of myth is that you're conveying an idea through a through the story and it's it's so much more of an efficient way to send information through you know eons than writing a book that tells a literal history of something yeah and you know he was trying to He's trying to sort of create a unified mythology of England, right? Mm-hmm. And he was, you know, he was very, very devoutly Catholic guy. And a lot of Lord of the Rings was influenced by his experiences in the war too. Yeah. Um, but th- his his understanding of 
why it was so, you know, why are these stories about Odin and Thor and Loki so important that, you know, people have held on to them orally for thousands of years. And then even, you know, they're written down, you know, by people who didn't understand them, you know, who were, you know, were Roman monks and shit. They were like, well, we should probably yeah. write down what these people think, keep them. And, uh, and even here we are almost a thousand years after that happens. And it's still hugely inspirational to people. Yeah. And that could be said of pretty much any belief system or text or whatever. Like it, that, that is so such a beautiful understanding of how storytelling should work. Yeah. I, I 100% agree. I mean, you, 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 you have said that in a way that I, I probably would have just said the exact same way. That's your, your understanding of the man is, is incredible. Yeah. Like he, his belief in myth and the, how it overlaps with culture, how it overlaps with language and history and how history can become myth and myth even become history is, is, is incredible. Right. And his, his love of, of beautiful things stem from that. Um, like in the same way that it's like a lot of these stories are, are ancient beyond our understanding and they, they, they share so much with each other. Right. It's like down to the, the names that we gave these characters, like they all, you know, depending on what culture you're analyzing in Europe, they have the same characters. They just are a little bit different. And if you go further back, we've started to realize through like analysis of the Proto-Indo-European language that like, you know, these are historical loan words. And for the most part, Europe is, is, um, you know, it stems from this Proto-Indo-European culture. There's one language I isolate, which is the Basque, which is, that's a whole another story, you know, like (laughs) that's, that's some, that's a people that are very intriguing and I encourage you to look up their history. Um, But the Fens kind of had their own language tree as well. Yeah. 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 Um, But, but a lot of the, the stories and they're sort of like the names of the gods down to like, you know, in Proto-Indo-European, it's, I think, uh, and I'm going to butcher these pronunciations because they, 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 you know, it's a lot of guttural sounds um, that are ancient and I can't for the life of me pronounce them, but it's like, you know, they had a name for the God of uh, the main God of the Pantheon and his name was uh, Deus Jupiter, right? Mm -hmm. You know, Deus Jupiter that in in and of itself, like just (laughs) extends to everything from Deus to Zeus to, um, you know, they had another one called Wodan Parkinos or something like that. And Wodan Odin and then Wodan yeah wednesday it's it's such like it all stems from like a, a unified cultural understanding as far as we believe right well, europe um, up until you know very recently was one of the most like ethnically homogenous places that you could go right like there's far more diversity in africa than there is you know really anywhere else in the world but especially compared to you know white europe yeah, but but at the same time, like ancient European history is 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 extremely diverse. They have a mythological sort of unison, but yeah, you know the the, the cultures were so beautiful and different out there. I mean, and this is coming from someone who is not a European at all. Like I, I just I see it, and 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 it's like you know some the beliefs of 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 these people are are they stem from something that's um you know, almost homogenous, but they, 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 they spread out and they changed in such ways. And they had so many different cultural overlaps, like the difference between Spain and, and, you know, the, the Balkans, right? Like, and their culture, their dress, their sound, their languages, it's a small space of land that had a very 
large and diverse range of linguistic and oral histories. And I feel like Tolkien saw this and wanted to kind of like unify them. Yes, it was like a unified um, history of, of, of England, but also of, of greater Europe in, in general. Like a lot of the stories like of uh, Baron and Luthien or of uh, what, what, what I'm trying to remember, uh, the, the children of Huron. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's a Finnish tragedy that he retold, you know. I'm trying to remember the name of the actual Finnish tragedy, and I'm not going to be able to. But I just know, like, the story of, of the man who, slow, like, you know, killed the dragon, but ended up tragically, you know, having an incestuous relationship with his sister, to say the least. Um, I don't know if this is Finnish, but, like, it sounds a lot like Sigurd. And that, the whole, you know, the, a lot of these stories, again, are intercultural. Like, so, I mean, you hear the, the ring cycle, uh, yeah. Wagner's work was in, in Tolkien, both kind of had the same influence in the story, the legend of Sigurd. And then you realize that there, there's like the German version of that same story. And then there's the Icelandic version of that same story. There's the Norse version of the same story. It's like that story is far older than it, any of its like written text. So we have this tendency to kind of uh, you know, carbon data document and be like, well, this story is about that old. But like in reality, like, no, that's just the first time or that's the only instance of like, we found a written document of that. You know, we don't know how many times they wrote it down and it got destroyed or lost in like an Alexandria yeah. situation. Or how long it was passed down, passed down as an oral history before mm-hmm. anyone decided that it needed to be carved into like a rock or some shit like that. Right. And the same thing applies to the Iliad and the Odyssey with Homer and, and many, right. many, many other examples. Like, it's just these are stories that people felt so they're so important to them, you know, and the lessons that could be learned from them that they had to keep them alive, even when they didn't have a you know a written language to do so. That's what I mean. If you read the, the Havamal, Odin is very very clear about how important the runes are. They say the runes, yeah. and you think of runes as like these mystical things. They literally like writing was considered holy, yeah, like this sacred thing. Because it was so important to the point that he, he, you know, went through an absolute tribulation, a trial of, of torture and pain to self-sacrifice almost in, in, in a Christian way to, 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 pre- to present and reveal the runes to, to, you know, to the gods and to those people. Right. Yeah. yeah. And for, for PG reasons, I'm not going <laughs> to retell that story, but it's not very <laughs> nice. I'll tell you that much. Um, but yeah, I, I totally agree. And, and like where that stems and where that goes on to philosophically, the importance of writing or of sharing these stories or to have these things in, in a quote unquote timeless way um, that the recognition of those ancient cultures to see that and to be like the big tenant of the, of their, you know, the God of the gods, right the center of the pantheon to have done that, to reveal that to himself like that. It shows a, a sort of, um, I'm trying to say a, an intelligence, almost like an awareness of an ancient culture and of an ancient history and of an ancient people that we often don't give them credit for. Right. right. And Odin is given the name all father, not because he's literally the father of all the gods, but because he was, it's not he wasn't even the first god, right? He was no. just the one who realized, you know, the whole story. And I mean, we could have a whole di- dissertation on 
<laughs> Ragnarok and the philosophy behind what, what does that really mean? But like, yeah, he, he was the one who first understood that like, there is a cycle here. He saw the full picture. He, he, you know, <laughs> where will you be when the acid hits? Like the kind yeah. of thing. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And uh, anyway, like the whole point of me getting on that tangent was to say that like that, that's such a uh, huge inspiration on you as a storyteller. And what I'm looking for in sprawl is, is exactly what you kind of stated already. Like that, you know, I'm not going to tell you everything about the world. You don't need to, uh, it's not important even to understand every little detail, you know, and have it spoon fed to you. You just need to understand that there's something bigger and looming at play that you will gradually, you know, if you look for it, understand, but that's yeah. uh, to tie it back into the runes, like, you know, the read the runes in the green grass and all that sort of thing. Like you, yeah. you're just looking for little subtle clues to help you draw a little bit closer to the bigger picture at all times. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and again, it, it relates back to like the kind of storytelling and the things that I enjoy. It doesn't come from anything else besides that. Like, you know, a lot of people like to come into this kind of ordeal with the gravitas about like the way I'm doing it is the best way of doing it. And I, I hold no such beliefs. The way I'm doing it is just the way that I enjoy it. And I hope that other people enjoy it. And for the same reason, um, which presents one, I think, one problem when it comes to conveying it. Because I don't want to tell people, but at the same time, it's like, how do you communicate to your audience and to people who are interested into the game that that's a, a core tenant of it, right? Um, down to the gameplay, right? And, and, and the core loop about you, there are more efficient options than other options, but you can still do what you want. You're just not going to have the greatest time. We expect you to kind of figure it out. It's going to be a challenging experience until you do. Um, there's going to be a lot of places where like that gameplay start going to start to expand and change. And that was the challenge of being able to pack all of that into such a small sliver of what the greater picture of this game is at first level. Right. And it's one of those things where I've, I've thankfully have had people that were close to me that tested this already a month ago or more. And, have told me that they have gone back and replayed it over and over again. And I've started to pick up more and more and more things and like figured out new parts of the combat loop or new parts of the enemy design or like new parts of the environmental storytelling or found an area of the map that was, they didn't even know was there and it's completely unnecessary for you to even go there. Um, and discovered a bit of environmental storytelling there and asked me questions like, well, what's this guy doing there? Right? Why is he on fire and hanging off these cables? What's that about? And then me having to just kind of hold my tongue and be like, I don't know. You'll figure it out eventually. But having that aspect of these these people going back who typically are guys who do not enjoy this type of game nor enjoy um, single-player experiences or anything of this kind of sort, kind of wanting to go back and discovering these things and telling me that they enjoy that aspect of it has been an incredibly humbling and, and um, heartwarming experience and possibly the best part about doing this all, because at the end of the day, the reason I'm doing it is because I want to share an aspect of what makes me, me like, you know, the, the creative side of me, the, the artistic side of me, this is an expression of that to its core. It's um, that's the reason I'm doing this at least. Um, because I truly believe in everything about that game, about that experience, about the whole package. 
Um, and I'm willing to sit down and work on it for 12 hours and then go to sleep for three and then wake up in the morning and be like, shit, I'm excited to go back and finish this thing. Right. Like it's, it's, it's fun. It's, it's life given. And it's something that I haven't had, um, until very recently with music. Um, and there's a whole another thing that we're going to do with music, um, unrelated to sprawl with me and my projects that has given me life in that kind of sense as well. But it's an exciting prospect. It's something that makes me very happy that I'm able to, to, to do. What, one of the things like the biggest challenges, and and I feel like when I was kind of writing out my, my notes on the, on the the demo, I hope it didn't come across the wrong way, but like, I, I know that a lot of people are going to look at this game at the very surface level and be like, okay, it's boomer ghost runner. We get it. And I mean, immediately, like there, there are so many similarities that it's really hard to ignore, at least in the, you know, the early part of the game, because you start off in like the kind of cyberpunk dilapidated city. You've got the robot guy who's kind of like guiding you along. You've got the samurai sword, you've got the parkour and like the, you know, neon flashing arrow lights that you jump across. And like, these are all, you know, it's not like Ghost Runner invented these things. It's just like kind of the most popular recent example of something yeah. like that happening. But then you have the the addition of you know, the other weapons. Like you're not you're not doing this like ability tree. At least not from what I've played. You're doing a uh, you We're know not. like get, get get guns and shotguns and, and machine guns and kind of figure out how to use those to move around the enemies in an efficient enough way that they're not killing you faster than you kill them. Which is you know that's essentially doom. Um, in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but there, there's so much more to it. There's so much more like environmental storytelling going on that it's just really hard to ignore. And I hope that people don't miss that. Um, so do you, do you have like a design philosophy that will be a fail safe for that? Or are you just kind of relying on word of mouth? What, what's your plan? Well, it's one of those things where it's like, Yes, there is an underlying design philosophy to the whole thing that we're going to slowly reveal as time goes on. And it, it, same thing as a story, but like it, it's hard. I believe a lot in contrast. I believe a lot that when something is loud and it's always loud, then it's not loud. When something is always bright, then it's not bright. When it's something is always white, then there's it's just not white. It's just that. That's all so, it is. The when you have it said like the notes you don't play are more important than the notes you do. Yep. Yeah. The spaces between the notes, all that. Exactly. Yeah. Silence. And you know, it, 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 we as producers have quantified this into dynamic range in music is so important, blah, 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 blah. But like that extends far beyond that. Like the reason why Tolkien stories, for example, are so powerful is because there's the ups and the downs. It's not just one hero that, fucking blazes through the whole thing and it's done it's like tragic absolute fuck things happen to these people and there's a history and a diversity and like you know at any point could have manway stepped down from the fucking heavens and been like fuck you sauron bye but the whole point is that there is there's a contrast between incredible good with incredible evil um which is i guess a very western way of thinking of things and more than other philosophies there's a whole spectrum but at the same time that applies to storytelling and that applies to the game design that applies to everything that i want to do with sprawl it's we want to do all these things 
but if we present them all at once and if we only focus on doing those things, then they don't have the same impact and they don't have the same power as if we have the other aspects kind of seeping in, right? Like you can make a game that's all gravitas, but then it has no impact because there's nothing else to kind of contrast that side of things. When you have a game that starts off doing everything that we want to do from the first time that you do it, like as soon as you pick it up, you have nowhere to go from there. When it comes down to the marketing and the showing of the game and the things that we're doing, if we show everything at once, we have nowhere to go with it. We want to slowly open up the world and and slowly open up the narrative and slowly open up everything that we're doing to continue to um, have people be interested in what we're making. I think that's a really important thing. And a lot of projects and a lot of music and a lot of the things that I've seen die because they, they, they're unable to keep providing that core tenant of contrast. And so when it comes down to the philosophy of it, it, it it's all about contrast, but it's also about making sure that we're able to, to portray that in an interesting way. So like you, you play the first level, you see the first level, and we're going to put out a playthrough sometime very soon. Um, maybe even it's already come out by the time this podcast come out of, of, of the entirety of the first level. Aware that a lot of people are going to see this and come to the same conclusion that you did. In the same way that the stories that Tolkien said were far more ancient than him, people see those stories and they're like, oh, that's Lord of the Rings. You know, the AI talking to you in your head, that comes from William Gibson, a neuromancer that came out in 82. Um, And funnily enough, Blade Runner was developed completely independently and aesthetically independently of neuromancer. They came Mm -hmm. out around the same time and they had never talked to each other. They had never, there was nothing... They were just the same cultural influences, but they told a similar story and a similar place. And that sort of idea is going to be, you know, like you're going to see it from the surface level and it's going to present itself as being like just that story again. But it's there's going to be so much more that we're going to be able to slowly roll out and hopefully with that slow rollout, provide enough emergent and changing things to keep people interested and attract new people to the product and, you know, make people's impressions of it change and as that 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 was the approach that i wanted to do and if you see the first video we ever posted we just show up we just show off two of our enemy types even though there was more already in the game and two of the weapons when we could have sat there and shown off everything else but the whole point is to not do that it's to slowly reveal these things and so people made and passed judgment on it and you can look at you know, if you care about it, looking up internet forums that are talking about the game and they all, they all pass their judgment. It's like, it's just this and it's boring. But then you see these same people start talking about it with the new stuff that's coming out and their appraisal changes. And they're like, wait, this looks kind of cool. I, I didn't know this was a part of the game or this. Wait, that's interesting. And I feel like that's going to happen with this video as well. Some of those people that had already passed their judgment are going to realize that things are changing. This is presenting itself as something different. And then the next level is going to be the same thing. And as we show off some of those new enemies as well, right? And it's not like we're doing this as we go. We are maybe placing things into the game as we go. But the entire outline from the first level to the last level, the story, the narrative, everything is already written out. The whole plan, everything. We know what we're doing with this. It might change a little bit, (laughs) but we have an exact 
ideas. This is step one. This is step B. This is how we're making this game. And we know it's going to work because we've learned our lessons from our contemporaries and from as many other people that have tried to make this kind of thing before. Um, And I hope, I hope, and that's all I can do. I hope that this approach works out. Something that you mentioned to David when you're on his show, uh, don't truck shit, my bad. Yeah. No, I'm doxed. Um, (laughs) I, I really enjoyed, and I I thought this was like a totally different take that you just don't hear enough because a lot of people kind of lump cyberpunk into just like this one sliver, like this, it means this thing. And you were kind of explaining how there, there in fact are and and have become subgenres within that. And you were describing how you were more a fan of like the, you know, the ghost in the shell, like version of cyberpunk than necessarily like a, like a Blade Runner kind of thing. And I'm, since you already kind of brought up the comparison between Neuromancer and Blade Runner, I was kind of hoping you might uh, elaborate a bit more on that topic. 100%. I mean, something I'm really passionate about, and I've, and I've done projects musically and projects, like I said, the, the story of Sprawl, you know, the namesake itself comes from William Gibson. That's what he described the, you know, you asked me if I was from Alabama, but it's like, no, it's from Bama. Damn it. I, <laughs> you, I, you were I, waiting I, I made a note, like a mental note to bring that up. And then I forgot about it. And you, (laughs) so just a long story short, I, I wrote rebel and I was like, so you're from Alabama because your Twitter page says Bama on it. And I'm like, Oh, sick. Like, so there's somebody in Alabama smart enough to make a game. Holy shit. I'm not the only guy out there. Uh, which is obviously a stupid joke, but (laughs) so what is it? It's the, the, Boston it, it's it's the Boston something metropolitan area I don't know you what the A is oh I you don't even know <laughs> no, I, I, I knew but the, it's like I said I, I my brain has this ability to retain a lot of knowledge but paraphrase a lot of it um just to go on it's a little side chunking yeah like I yeah. I uh Boston Atlanta metropolitan axis no oh, I was completely wrong yeah, it's on your wiki page, and also in our messages. I scrolled up <laughs> there. It's one of those things. I'm 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 good at remembering the big picture, not the small details. Most of the time, I can I can go on rants about something, and then when you ask me what the name of it was, I'll be like, uh, uh, about that, you know. Um, that's why I'm not a programmer. Anyway, um, to kind of get back into the gist of what I wanted to say, it's like cyberpunk exists just like myth and stories do in different lineages, right? Um, and they go into different directions and the kind of cyberpunk that I was always a big fan of and the stuff that I felt was really powerful was, you know, a subsidiary of like sort of the Eastern take on it. You know, Japan had its own version of cyberpunk that was really, you know, just Blade Runner was gritty, but it it built an aesthetic that there's nothing wrong with it. That was very much based in the eighties. Right. And a lot of Western cyberpunk has been stuck there and, it, it all kind of looks and feels the same. It all sounds like like 80s synth wave and it all has those neon lights and it's all like tinted blue and it all like nothing wrong with that. Just not, not my kind of thing. Whereas I feel like everything about Ghost in the Shell and Akira was grounded in a, in, in a reality and a grittiness that stems from the cultural experiences of Japan as a country after the Second World War. And their fears of certain kinds of uh, things happening 
Whereas the West was afraid of Japan eventually taking over. And that's why you see all those signs in Japanese. Uh, Japan was afraid of a different subset of things happening culturally. Um, you know, and, and when you see the aesthetics of something like Akira, you see a lot of like body horror and a lot of like industrial, dark, dingy design that's very different from the lineage of Blade Runner and Neuromancer. Mm-hmm. Influenced by them, obviously. They came after it, but different. And then when you get to Ghost in the Shell, Mamuro Oshii, who is, is the director, was had a very clear vision about what that was going to look like. And you can see it in his earlier and later works, you know, with Pat Labor and, and uh, Angel's Egg and stuff like that, that he liked the dilapidated, the darkness, the, the edgy, the grungy, the, hum- the, the more human side of that and how that philosophically is problematic with its incomp- incompatibilities with human identity. Um, Mamuro Oshi is actually, I think, I'm pretty sure, is, is, uh, is also a Christian um, and is influenced by those sorts of works and, and, and the philosophical ramifications of cyberization and humanity. And a lot of the the cityscapes and the environments that he portrayed are reflections of that. So he did a very different take on what cyberpunk was. They flew to Hong Kong in the 90s and used that as the visual inspiration as to what the dilapidated, the, the, the human side of the city was going to look like. And they contrasted that with this beautiful, architecturally pristine world of like the modern side. And that's where you get like those sort of like old Hong Kong signs that are rusted and, and broken in the apartment blocks that were very much um, part of, of, of communist China's relationship with the Soviet Union and the, and the commie blocks of, of Khrushchev and those kind of designs that are very homogenous and there was not a lot of personality in them. And, you know, how that sort of changed as Hong Kong's stance as a independent city separate from the greater Japanese and sorry, the greater Chinese um, government was like you, you ended up seeing, you know, like the streets get polluted with all of these neon signs. And then all of these like other signs that were all just competing for visual space and a, a very clear representation of when everything is loud, nothing is loud. But that lineage ended up being very different from what the West was still doing with cyberpunk. It was, like I said, very still rooted in the eighties, whereas that was a more modern take and perspective. Um, and that felt very fresh to someone who liked the genre and wanted to see it grow and change and maybe be portrayed differently in, in, in Western media. And I feel like a lot of the games and different things that are cyberpunk, which I enjoy a lot. My favorite game is Deus Ex. And I, despite cyberpunk's problems, I love that game. But I think visually, they didn't do enough to challenge what you expect that world to look like. A lot of what you're going to realize about Sprawl's design and visual influences, it's going to be very downtrodden. It's very, very heavy, very dark. It's not going to be very, you know bright shiny neon lights it's not going to be a lot of like upbeat you know design and 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 those feelings of isolation that were so prevalent in in, in oshi's work and ghost in the shell specifically the first and the second one they're going to be reflected in the visual design of sprawl 
And I feel like that really differentiates what we're doing with, say, like other things in the genre. Um, people have done slums in cyberpunk. That's not what I'm doing. What I'm doing is more or less about that sort of monotony and that disconnect between a visual identity and an internal mm-hmm. identity and how that can be reflected in the world. Um, whether or not people end up picking up on that or like even give a shit about what I'm saying is, is irrelevant to me. Like, obviously I would love them to, but it's the guiding principle besides behind everything that I do. Like if you, you'll start to notice that a lot of things, even in that first level is like they're religious structures, there's scans of temples and stuff like that, but they're surrounded by grime and dirt and very, you know, encroaching aspects of, of humanity, of technology when you get to that center plaza with all the screens, if you look at that tower, it's an obelisk with a bunch of, you know, religious depictions on it, but it's covered in pipes and screens and wires. The destruction of beautiful human things with humans technology is kind of like the guiding visual principle behind sprawl. Um, I actually find that topic really interesting because, okay. We, we always talk about, um, you know, a, a city that's fallen to nature or whatever, like it's given way to ages and, and trees and everything grow back through it and it becomes a ruin. But it, we consider that to be like beautiful, you know, like just in, in our culture, at least that we look at that and we're like, oh, isn't that amazing how nature always, um, you know, come, comes back and reclaims the earth and all this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I totally like on a personal level, uh, have the same gut feeling of technology and industrialism being this sort of looming, un- understandable, unstoppable evil that will probably end up doing exactly what we, it's a beautiful metaphor. Just like this religious structure is taken over by pipes and lights and, and everything. And it, it loses its humanity in the process. Mm-hmm. But uh, we're at this point now in, in technology where we're kind of, it, it, it almost feels natural, right? Like you and I are talking to each other through a computer screen right now, right? through, yeah. a, you know, an array of wires and microphones and data and, and fucking, you know, internet cables and you know, whatever. And, and that, like, I don't feel guilty about that. And I, I do think that I would prefer to just be sitting at a fucking bar, but that's not the yeah. case right now. <laughs> I agree. But I would too. It is equally natural that people build things <laughs> as yeah. as anything else. So, like you know, a, a building being dilapidated by <laughs> humans just building more shit on top of it is not. It's not. This wouldn't even be the first time that happened. It's no. look at the Aztecs and the Incas and the Mayas are like three layers of civilization built on top of each other, all with like thousands of years in between them. Uh, the same thing if you, you know, were to look at Cairo, and the same thing if you look at you know, a, a lot of these places. If you look at like Rome Europe, today. Yeah. yeah. Look at Rome today. You got the Colosseum smack dab in the middle of a very modern city that has a rich history with the Renaissance, with the unification of Italy, with fascist Italy, and then with modern European identity, right? Like it's yeah. all it's all living next to each other. Um, whereas you know, the Western lineage of cyberpunk just kind of like has different cultures meshing with each other, but it doesn't, ex- it doesn't show the same culture building upon itself. Yeah. Which is something that I, I, you know, again, as someone who is a fan of, of history and of humanity in general and, and, and the problems that are going to face it over the course of the next hundred years, 
I think isn't representative, but represented enough in the media, um, in cyberpunk in general, you know, there's obviously different genres that do a better job of it, but I think that cyberpunk has such a beautiful potential to inform and to be reflective and an incredible ability to be the modern myth, um, of our generation that, you know, we may not face these kinds of tribulations or it might be our kids, but there's so much that can happen that we can use these stories to prepare ourselves for, right? Do we want the the dystopia or the protopia? Are we going to be subjected to both at the same time? Are the divides that divide us only going to grow stronger, wider? Is there evidence pointing to the contrary? There's, there's so much that I want to do with that genre. Um, that it influences a lot of the art that I make to this day. And yes, we're packaging so much of that into a, a very, you know, you can, you can call it a very lowbrow vehicle, right? It's a retro FPS where you blow shit up and the blood goes everywhere, right? But I think like those, those, those sorts of carnal pleasures and the way that I'm going to tie them and kind of conclude them into the story, is, 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 it's an interesting meta. And I can't talk more about it because I want it to be a surprise. The way that you describe cyberpunk in general, and I would just say science fiction as a whole, sci-fi, I mean, for the past literally 100 years, has always kind of been the bastard child of literature. And it's like hard, most people wouldn't even call it literature, you know, in a serious sense. It very much is, to me anyway. But like, uh, you hear the same arguments when people are talking about, we're going to talk about Tolkien again. So if you you hate J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, sorry, (laughs) we're just going to keep talking um, but high fantasy at a certain point was not taken seriously as a genre. You know, he was the first guy to really do it. I mean, you'd had the like TH white, um, and then CS Lewis and sort of the, all of these guys were kind of contemporary and around the same time, but just really amazing stuff. And TH white at least had the, he was writing the Arthurian legend, which people were familiar with. And it wasn't like a, this big offshoot thing, but Tolkien inventing like a whole new universe was definitely weird. And people didn't understand it and they didn't take it seriously. And now here we are, fuck 70 years later from the Lord of the Rings being published. When was the Hobbit even before that? Yeah, Hobbit was before that. Hobbit yeah. Was before that. He was writing these stories in the fucking trenches, you know, and yeah. those stories evolved and changed. Yeah mythological sociological sense in the same way you would pass them down that it kind of feels like those stories change in that same way which i always felt was a really interesting part and a reason why those stories were so um reflective of that idea yeah i mean i was gonna eventually go on a tangent about the orcs and how like people people look at the orcs and they're like well you know, maybe maybe Tolkien was like a, a racist or whatever. Like, who are these people supposed to represent? And I'm like, no, that, the orcs represent like at least from my point of view, and I think his point of view as well, industrial warfare. Yeah, like the, there weren't no particular ethnic group invoked there. It was just like when when war becomes business. <laughs> exactly. That, yeah, that's one hundred percent. I mean, the whole story of Saruman. Um, burning down Fangorn to fuel the industries of of war and how he, you know, Sauron was a was a not a Maiar, yeah, he was a Maiar of Aule, right? The the god of 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 craft of industry. I could have totally butchered that, but if I remember that correctly, that's how it was. And Sauron was the greatest of of of, of his sort of Maiar, his his demigods, right? 
And so Sauron is a tragic character in many sense because he fell to Melkor, which is basically, you know, Satan in the in the Tolkien universe and someone you probably don't hear a mention of except like in a passage or two in Lord of the Rings or in The Hobbit. And he wanted a piece of Melkor just wanted to destroy things that were beautiful because he was a petulant child. Sauron just wanted to organize the world. He wanted industry to take over. He wanted to have everything be in order. He felt like the world as governed by nature was governed by chaos and that he was a force of order to come in and to rectify all these things. There was another guy that felt that way too in the 1930s. Uh, yeah, there was, there was uh-huh. a couple of them. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, it's like um, you're totally right. The representation of orcs is definitely one of like industry and of um, the destruction of, of the natural world for the sake of quote-unquote progress um whether or not you agree with these sorts of things is is beyond the point of what tolkien was trying to make um you know and, and, and there are maybe cultural overlaps with like some of the side stories the the, the haradrim for example are definitely supposed to be you know arabic in nature but like that his approach to that wasn't so much xenophobic or racist it was mostly um i would like to at least believe of the cultural fears of europe at the time that was being invaded by these forces they weren't necessarily evil, but they were outsiders. And so the culture at the time perceived them as that, and he wanted to preserve that in his, in his telling of the myths. As I'm aware, he was a tolerant man in a time where he had no reason to be tolerant. Um, f- fought against intolerance his entire life. He did not, he, 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 he had a, you know, I think Nazi Germany asked him about his lineage when they were trying to publish some of his books, and he told them, I am proudly not a Jew, but I wish I was. <laughs> he's german it, it's it's His name's tolkien like yeah and i mean who gives a shit like at the end of the day he's just like he was maybe the lead may, he might actually still be the leading expert of his time in all of german mythology which was you know yeah. being simultaneously used to try to justify what was going on and and he was disgusted. He was like, this is the most disgusting, gross bastardization of what the Nordic myths ever set out to say. And for yeah. you to use it in, in the way that you're doing it is like the, mo- the most anti-German thing you could ever do. And, and di- died feeling that way. You know, and he was upset yeah. when the Catholic church stopped speaking Latin. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fuck it was. He, 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 he was a, he was obviously a product of his times, but he was also a very n- different breed than he could have been. Yeah. I mean, considering everything that was happening, his experiences, he was in the same war as Hitler and he came out of it a completely different person than he did. You know, it's complex. It's obviously complex, just like the rest of humanity and like the, the rest of the people and, 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 and our reconciliation with, things that we now recognize as problematic now, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, like I, I think you have to also observe a lot of these people in, in, in the era that they existed and contextualize them. And I think that's also a very important thing in storytelling and beyond, you know, it's like, it's the most bastardized way that I could probably say that is the Simpsons effect. Like everyone sees the Simpsons now and it's like, that's nothing special, but like, you know, at the time it was different. And oh, I feel that way about with half-life, right? It's like you play Half-Life now and it's like, oh, it's a piece of shit. Like this is what's so cool about this. It's like, well, think about when it fucking came out, you dumbass. Like that, that's, yeah. 
how you have to observe these things. Past judgment based on their context, not so much where they exist now. When you listen to the Beatles, you hear every rock band that came after the Beatles. So for me, like, like, do you, how could you not love the Beatles? I'm like, it's not like I don't appreciate them. It's just that when I hear the Beatles, I hear every other rock band. Yeah. From then on, so like it doesn't sound all that special now. I'm sure in you know 1960s it was like, whoa, dude. I mean, wow, like, and it was, it absolutely was. <laughs> There's a reason we're still talking about them today. Yeah. It was. So, um, anyway, I went on that tangent to <laughs> to make a point about the tangent that I was on before that tangent, which was another tangent of something else. Yeah. Um. Uh, so sci-fi in general and cyberpunk as a part of sci-fi, I, I would, I don't know how you really describe cyberpunk other than like the art, the artistic, the, 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 huh? The visual visualized artistic portrayal of science fiction. Maybe that's a good way to put it. it it's definitely um, cyberpunk as a genre, at least to me feels like the, the author's desire to tackle the same forces of modernization that, you know, inspired Tolkien to write the orcs, but take them to a logical conclusion and understand how that's going to affect their lives, whether it's massive urbanization or, you know, cyberization of human beings, the, our increasing reliance on computers, all these kinds of things. I mean, Despite like what you were saying that 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 sci-fi almost feels like the the reject child of 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 literature there's an increasing the power and the prophetic nature of fucking someone like Gibson just blows my mind. I was going to uh, say the same thing about Asimov. Asimov as well and and, yeah. and, and K. Dick and there's and so many authors but I love this example of Gibson because it relates to what I do. Do you know that Gibson invented dubstep? Like, no. <laughs> in, in, in 82, in Neuromancer, he describes that the Rastafarians that live on the space station listen to a highly processed digital version of dub music. What the fuck, man? This... <laughs> that... I read that like I could have bastardized that line completely, but I read that shit in like, I don't even know, 2011 or something like that. And like, I just sat there like, wait, did, did no, wait, how the fuck did he predict that this weird offshoot of Rastafari reggae would then get shipped somewhere into the UK and, and, and the lineages of rave music in America would somehow coalesce and create garage in the UK, which then would transform and morph into dubstep. That, that, that the man was an Oracle. He had a fucking Palantir. I, I guarantee you sitting in his fucking room. There's no way, no way that, that, that out of all his predictions, handheld computers, the internet called the matrix, all these fucking other crazy ideas. That to me is the one that really blew my mind. As a musician, as someone who at the time may have partook in the in, in the dub of stepping. <laughs> I remember I drew the line when I walked into Hot Topic and I saw a shirt that said uh, sex, drugs, and dubstep. And I was like, you can't have that. Nah. <laughs> Rock and roll will never die. I, I'll yeah. die. 
I'll piss on dubstep's grave. I swear. No, but no, it's because it's like everything else. The dubstep has a bad rep because of the commercialization of, of course, there's beautiful dubstep. There's beautiful dub music that is very passionate. You ever listen to burial burial? Like, no, I don't think so. I will send you burial and all my friends who are listening to this are going to laugh their fucking asses off because I am notorious for if anyone talks about burial to me, I will sit you down for two hours and talk about burial with you. I'm not going to do that right now, but I will, I encourage you to listen to his music. It is such, it it is the most somber, dark and incredibly human music that I can attribute to an electronic artist. And there is a myriad of reasons why that again, if you're curious down the line, then I will gladly hop on the phone with you and talk to you about why burial is so amazing. But I encourage (laughs) you to listen to his music. I'll check out anything you recommend at this point, man. Like (laughs) I've already got a lot of homework to do. Just, just Timothy Dexter alone is going to take up the rest of my evening. That's fucking Um, right. right. I guess the, the point I was trying to make was that science fiction, cyberpunk, whatever it's, it is the, it is still myth. It is just taking what's happening now and extrapolating it to the future in a, in a mythological sense to teach a lesson or to, you know, do an experiment to try to figure out like, how should we be? What are we? You know, these very basic visceral human questions. Um, one of my favorite short stories that I've ever written is uh, the last question by Asimov. Mm-hmm. And actually dude, like, a couple weeks ago, me and my wife went up to visit some friends in Seattle and went to the Mopof and I got to like stand next to the Asimov's typewriter that he wrote a lot of these stories on. And it was just so cool. Like, oh, um, but in, in the last question, I'm going to just, I'll fucking spoil it. It's like 13 pages long. If somebody wants to go read it, but you know, it's like just this kind of like three part repeating kind of chorus of a short story where it's like, you know, in the year, blah, 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 like shortly after now, there's a supercomputer and people ask it like, Hey, um, what's, you know, what's the meaning of life? What, you know, what should we do? And and it always responds like, I don't have enough data to answer that question right now. And then, mm-hmm. and then they ask it again, like several thousand years later in, in a spaceship and they ask it again, like in a, you know, a, another situation that's even more extrapolated than that. And the computer outlives the people. And then at the end of the story, the computer finally like has had enough time to, and enough data to process what it's trying to do. And it says, let there be light. And that's the end of the story. Yeah. And, and it's just this really beautifully. <sighs> crafted and prolific kind of way of describing the, the, this idea that we are sort of manifesting our own future. We just don't really see all the parts to it yet. I think that's kind of been the theme of this conversation. Yeah. And, and, Overall. And that, that you just summed up perfectly probably what we're all trying to say here, both you and me, the, the idea of, of everything being cyclical, the, the gravitas of humanity, the philosophical ramifications of God and cyberpunk is a genre. If there is not a God, then maybe we should create them like so much to unpack there. If you choose to do so. Um, I, I, before we, I mean, we probably have to maybe logically wrap up at some point soon, but I do want to touch on one more thing. I feel about sprawl and, and about um, the storytelling you called sci-fi almost the reject child of, of literature. And I want to touch on why sprawl to me made so much sense to be made as a dude who had no reason to be making a video game. 
um, I'm a musician. I make dance music. And specifically, if we can specifically dance, yeah, specifically dance music and, and, and I'm making a cyberpunk video game. And not only just cyberpunk, but cyberpunk from the Eastern lineage from derived from anime in general. And it's also a video game. You know, if the reason I'm spelling it out in such, in such a slow way is because I want to touch upon the fact that I am very much a fan of the reject children of things and how they influenced each other. And in the 90s, you had a form of music that was being developed that no one believed was music. It was highly electronic. It was processed by machines and by people who were not musicians. It was dance music. You had a form of storytelling that was emerging from Japan that was anime that was trying hard to be taken seriously and and created arguably one of my favorite films, Ghost in the Shell from 1995. And it was not considered film. And you had video games who we don't even have to talk much about, but we can just come to the conclusion, but for a very long time, they were not considered art. And in the nineties, this magical thing happened where all three of these sort of reject children kind of hung out with each other at the lunch table and collaborated. And you had anime influencing video games being soundtracked by dance music. The reason I'm doing sprawl as a retro FPS is because those are the three things that I like. It was arguably easier for me to make sprawl look modern. A lot of the workflow that I do to make my assets spits out modern looking things. I then take that and I make it look quote unquote retro. The reason I do so is because I am immensely curious and immensely influenced by that overlap of those three things in the 90s. Something like Wipeout that, you know, with those types of graphics on the PS1 and and, and the soundtrack is all like the Prodigy or Fotech or these incredible acts from that era and a lot of the music that I make for my personal project as Revel is influenced by the 90s. To me, the logical conclusion of what I could do to push my love for all these things, all these three things at the same time was to make a retro 90s game. And that's the reason I'm doing it. That's the reason that I feel like it needs to be packaged in this way. Because th- those three things lived with each other and... I think some of my favorite things that I've ever consumed were products of that. And we don't recognize that enough. And if there's one thing I could even lend evidence to is probably even like one of my favorite probably ambient albums is, is the quake soundtrack by nine inch nails. Huge, huge fan. why, why, Why the fuck was that even a thing? And it's because of that relationship. And the more you look in the 90s, the more you're going to find that a lot of that overlap happened. I guess that's a good place to wrap it up, man. I've had a absolutely spectacular time uh, just getting to know you a bit. And I did not anticipate that this was going to be such a, a parallel conversation. Like, No, I dude, fucking me neither, man. That that down to the mom name is fucking bizarre. <laughs> well, you make sure you tell Teresa that I said hello and that I love I, her and happy I will. belated Mother's Day and all that. And then you tell her the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> but man, at this point, I feel like we have so much in common that if if you ever want to tap me to do another one of these, I will gladly in a heartbeat do it. That was oh. a blast. We're gonna get you. Blast. We're gonna get you on again. You know. 
literally whenever you want. Just like, hey, I have some shit I need to say. I'm like, all right, well, let's record it and put it out in the world. But like, uh, you know, as as the game continues to develop, when you get the the public demo out, when you get, uh, you know, first, if you're going to do early access, I'm I'm assuming you probably will. We'll do it then. We'll do it again after that. You know, as you make updates and then when the final game releases, we'll have a big fucking party. It'll be great. And when the Amazon Lord of the Rings series comes out, we'll go on here and just like get whiskey drunk and cry about how bad it is. How about that? I think the Silmarillion is going to be good, man. I really hope so. I the, really, really, they're really. They're not doing not the similar alien. That's the problem. They're doing like that. They don't have the rights to it. They have the rights to the 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 index, the annexes at the very end of Lord of the Rings, which kind of talks about the Second Age. So they're having to invent a bunch of shit, and their head lore master has quit. Three of their actors have quit because they don't like the direction that their characters are going. I am sad as to where this thing is going to end up. All right, and I'm we'll going to need to vent with someone, and we'll figure it out. We'll just talk about Star <laughs> Trek instead. <laughs> All right, that works. that's awesome, man. You're a good fucking dude. I'm the, it, it, it is. We're two pizza, two peas in a pod. That's awesome. If I'm ever out in Arizona playing a show or something, I fully expect you and me to grab a beer or something. You're a cool fucking dude. Or the same if I end up in LA for some ungodly reason. <laughs> Hopefully you don't. But if you do, then you're more than welcome anytime. That was fucking awesome, man. Thank you so much for having me on. You're, like I said, an incredible fucking dude. Get some rest. Relax. I know you're not going to do it because as soon as I'm done with this, I'm going to get back to work too. But um, I, like I said, I'm at any time, I'm here. Anything I could ever do for you, I'm fucking here. Just let me know. Same to you, brother. Music this week is by... Revel, and it is from the Sprawl soundtrack. So if you dig this track, you're going to get a whole lot more of that in the game. Of course, thank you to him, first of all, for the music, and also for being a guest on the podcast. That was amazing. I had a great time getting to know him. Shout out to Mother Teresa and my mama, Teresa. Tracy. I love you, Mom. And shit, we're coming coming up on episode 100, and it's going to be epic, and I can't wait for you to hear it. Because I'm not going to spoil it. It's just going to be cool. Anyways, if you're digging this show so much so that you want to give back to it, you can. Go to endthekeep.com forward slash support for all different ways. You can buy merch. Our Patreon supporters get free t-shirts and episodes early. So consider doing that if you're into that. Thank you to everybody who does so. Paul, Moose, Dots, Zach, Alexander, Brad, Red Eyes, Anthony, Robert, Jack, Brandy, Fred, Lord Revan, Tones, Igrek, Simon, Amorpher, Mike, Zan, Bridge, Ben, Donkey, Shannon, and the Flam Fam. I love all of you. You're amazing. And I love you out there listening the most. Please continue to do so. And then if you're liking it, make sure you go tell other people. That's the best thing you can do for the show. The best thing you can possibly do is to let other people know how much you enjoy it social media you can grab a t-shirt and wear it down the street you can climb to the top of a mountain and shout how much you love in the key that would be dope we appreciate it i love you the drowned god Catala loves you till next time stay in the key